Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And this is a bonus episode, just in case you're wondering, hey, why, why is there an episode here? I wasn't supposed to get a download today. Well, it's a bonus episode. And since we don't have anything particularly planned for it, um, we thought we'd, uh, we'd, we'd call the robot over here. Yeah, I know. After all, we, we get to talk a lot and express ourselves, but Arnie... Poor Arnie the robot just kind of comes back and forth on his little wheels, and that's about it. Yeah, so so come on over here, Arnie. How's how's it going? Well, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. We 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 haven't had as much time for the listener mail recently, but that's what this episode is all about. So this time you're you can be more a part of the episode, and you can you can share more of the listener mail. So so let us let us have some. What have you got here that's interesting? Arnie, you don't need to stand so close. All right, this first one comes to us from Paul. Paul writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I'm a longtime listener and have been wanting to write you guys for a long time and just never got around to it. I just listened to your Healing Power of Laughter podcast, and I wanted to let you know how inspired it made me. I am a combat medic in the U.S. Army, and I am going through the process of getting medically retired. I am lucky enough to be doing this in a specialized unit called the Warrior Transition Unit. This unit is special because it allows soldiers to do whatever it takes to heal. One of the newest programs they have implemented is recovery through music, guitar lessons, piano, etc. So I know that they are willing to think outside of the box when it comes to healing. Your podcast pushed me to try to create a program that connects soldiers with comedians and teaches them to laugh and make others laugh. It's going to be complex and take some work to develop on my part, but I think in the end it'll be a great program. I love your show and couldn't do this without your inspiration. I listen to you guys on my 40-minute drive to work, and you make it fly by. Thanks, Paul. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Oh, and, and he was in the 101st uh, Airborne, by the way. That is very cool. It and is, And yeah. I, I love that he put that together. I do wonder if, if he is about to uh, look into laughter yoga as well, which in this case I would say yes. I think laughter yoga would be very helpful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that the great thing about the program, like you said, it's, it's showing that they're willing to think out the, outside of the box about yeah. healing. And it shows more of a focus on actually healing people instead of going through a, just a regimented process to be like, all right, step one, two, three, you should be healed by now. Have, you know, go out and live your life. It's, it's more, it seems more uh, results oriented, which I think is great. Well, and you had brought up when we were talking about stress mm-hmm. and stress being that paper tiger um, that, that puts us on all alerts and how laughing is one of those things can, that, that can be that chemical release, that the way that you can return your blood pressure to normal and the way that you can sort of vanquish all of those chemicals that are building up the cortisol and so on and so forth in your body. So very cool stuff to hear about. And, um, Paul, please let us know how that turns out. Yeah, for sure. All right, here we have another one. This one is from Chris in Baton Rouge. And uh, Chris says, Hi, I've been listening to you guys for a while, and, and for my obligatory comment, you two have very soothing voices. And don't take this the wrong way, but I often listen to your podcast as I go to sleep. Uh, we've heard that from uh, from people before, which I, I I never take it the wrong way. But it does make me want to do a podcast where we talk softer and softer and softer, and then either we go, make you're very sleepy right now. Yeah, yeah, and then and then start messing with them either with loud noises mm-hmm. or just nightmare inducing. Uh, or I can go. Like I said, nightmare inducing. Yeah, I hope nobody's sleeping right now and they just bolted up in their beds. Chris continues, and he says, Anyway, recently I listened to your podcast on the dark side of creativity, and let me say, mission accomplished. You successfully blew my mind. 
What you described was me exactly. The analogy of the flashlight view and the lantern view was perfect. This was especially important to me because I feel it's hard to explain to others my mindset, and often I get frustrated with others not trying to uh, get all the facts or look at the whole picture. But I do envy other mindsets because they are sure, and uh, and they're, they're better at shooting straight forward down a path to a destination, while I seem to be forever scheduling, uh, searching for the best destination, if that makes any sense. Sincerely, Chris in Baton Rouge. Uh, I think that's uh, that's really fascinating. I think it, it also, I mean, I, as we talked before, I mean, you, you really need the different types of viewpoint in life. I mean, it, the people who have the flashlight view, mm-hmm. arguably, they might not. It might not be the the best view for like a, a full experience of the universe or you know or what have you. But in terms of say getting done with the task on the other end of that flashlight, that's great. Likewise, people with more of this lantern view of the universe, um, you know, that, that may be great for for bursts of creativity and whatnot. But maybe it means you can't focus as well on a given task. So I think there's a trade-off with both. Now, the origins of those terms, um, we, I think we have to talk about Alison Gopnik, and yes. she is the um, the child psychologist who uh, who talks about how kids have this highly creative mind, in particular babies, because they have that lantern view, because they are more aware than adults, and they're streaming all of this stimuli and um, so that's kind of what we were talking about when we were talking about the dark side of creativity, or not necessarily the dark side of creativity, but just creativity in general is this ability to tap into that and to not let those details that are all around us at all times just fly by to be able to consider these things and, and um, find sort of unique meaning in them. Yeah. All right, this next one comes to us from a listener by the name of Jim. Uh, Jim's written to us before, and he has a book recommendation for everyone. He says, Robert and Julie, about a year ago you did a podcast on whether mathematics was an invention or a discovery. I wrote to you uh, shortly after uh, that, that placing myself mostly in the invention camp. I would like to update my position based upon a book I received for Christmas, The Joy of X by Stephen Strogatz, an applied mathematics professor at Cornell. On page 5, Dr. Strogatz, who is a regular contributor to Radiolab, writes the following. Math always involves both invention and discovery. We invent the concepts but discover their consequences. As we'll see in the coming chapters, in mathematics our freedom lies in the questions we ask and how we pursue them, but not in the answers awaiting us. So, uh, yeah, this sounds like a a very interesting text. One I'll have to pick up the next time I, I, I get on a mathematics kick. Yeah, I was talking to my friend Maria um, over the weekend, and she is a mathematician, and she actually she teaches in Germany now, but she teaches um, math to, to physics students. And she was saying, she was kind of talking about some of her interests in, in her field, and she was talking about infinity. And so I, I who don't have a very large mathematics uh, background, said, look, don't strike me down for saying this, but a lot of what you're talking about really seems very philosophical. And she said, yes, yes, that, that a lot of people don't realize that when they're talking about math, they are, in a sense, talking about philosophy, uh, albeit in another language. All right. Well, this one comes to us from Charles. Charles writes in, and uh, he uh, is in, he's writing in response to our Splendid Isolation podcast a while back, where we talked about how isolation affects us and about how there's, with many of us, there's this desire for it. Like, oh, I don't, I don't have enough alone time in my life. And then if you have too much alone time, then you start going a little crazy sometimes. And we talked about it, too, in the context of astronauts, right? Yes, yeah. So Charles writes in and says, Robert and Julie, I enjoyed listening to your podcast, Splendid Isolation. I found the concept so intriguing that I decided I'd like to try it myself for a full year. In June 2012, at the age of 40, I chartered a boat to drop me off on an an uninhabited island in Alaska with my dog, a goat, 
and supplies. This was my first time to the island. I found a good spot to build and erected a 77-square-foot cabin. I've encountered hurricane-force winds, heavy snow, constant rain, and had two bear encounters while filming everything. Besides a few chance encounters with hunters and vacationers, I've been completely alone for six months as of last Friday. I post updates on Facebook on the Alaskan Pioneer page. And uh, if you want to visit that, that's facebook.com slash Alaskan Pioneer, one word. He says, while I do have limited communication, the isolation has uh, had some interesting effects on my cognition and emotions. It's increased my sleep, impaired my memory, and at times increases aggression and vigilance. My mood has remained consistently positive, however, and I've experienced no sense of loneliness. I've long wondered what it would be like to live alone in the wilderness for a full year, and now I am finding out. While I look forward to returning to society uh, next summer, I suspect it will be difficult to leave. I look forward to sharing my footage of my time here when I return. Thanks again for the fun podcast, Charles. Wow. Yeah, indeed. That, I mean, that's a lot to take in, and that is amazing. And, and, uh, I, I know I had talked about, like, living on a boat was one of my dreams, but that is sort of one of my <laughs> dreams, too, is to go off and to, to be able to not, like, leave my family necessarily, but there's a fantasy in being able to go off and, and know what it feels like to rely on yourself and to be out in the wilderness. Yeah, and, I think and that's it's just an amazing to be unplugged experience. Unplugged and everything. I, yeah. I I think it's neat that he brought he brought a dog and and, and the goat. Uh, I, I'm assuming he did not eat the goat. I was about to say that they're both alive. Yeah, yeah. And they're all doing doing yeah. well. But I, th- I feel like that would help enormously. Like having some sort of a you know a, a companion, even if it's not human. We've talked before about how how intense and how emotional our relationships with pets can be. And and goats have a lot of character. I love goats. Uh, Joyce Carol Oates has a short story about a lighthouse keeper in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And I believe at the point where the, the um, dog runs off, that's when his madness sort of uh, oh, wow. goes into effect. But anyway, that, that that's, of course, the 1800s. And um, Charles, you sound like you're having a, a wonderful time. And I really, I think this is wonderful. I am living vicariously through you. Um, did he say the Facebook page is Alaskan Frontier? Alaskan Pioneer. Pioneer, excuse me. Yeah, but definitely have to check that out. Oh, and speaking of uh, Joyce Carol Oates real quick, uh, have you been following her Twitter account? I have, it's, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. I think she may, may be the best Twitter account out there. I, I was telling someone the other day, like, if you just have to do one Twitter account and just, I mean, besides ours, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, check it out, because she always has something terribly interesting to say. It is. It's it's always interesting and insightful, and I wish more more Twitter feeds were like hers. All right, here we have uh, a couple of emails uh, regarding our recent hallucinations episode. Uh, This first one comes to us from Justin. Justin writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I recently listened to the Leprechaun Hallucinations podcast and wanted to share something from my childhood. When my brother and I were younger, we would infrequently get what we called small vision. For a short time, everything in the world would seem to be smaller or further away than it really was. You could even put your hands in front of you, and your arms would seem much longer than they should be. This would be accompanied by a slight pain pressure at the back of the head. I believe this is where the visual cortex is located. I have no idea why this happened, but it sounded a lot like Alice in Wonderland syndrome uh, you described in the podcast. Until now, I had never heard of anyone else experiencing something like this. Thanks for sharing the information with your listeners and giving me a little more perspective on my own experience. Wow. That's pretty pretty fascinating. Um, Yeah, I mean, it it does sound a lot like uh, the um, Alice in Wonderland syndrome. a syndrome about some of the Lilliputian uh, 
uh, hallucinations we were describing, where it starts messing with the way you're perceiving uh, the size of objects and, and distances. Yeah, and so it's interesting that the visual cortex was brought up, right? Because just to root everybody back in that podcast for context, we talked about is that when your vision is impaired um, in a variety of different um, situations, your brain doesn't like uh, the void and will begin to construct images for it. So that's why these hallucinations occur. And, uh, yeah, so it's very interesting to hear about that account. Yeah, it was interesting talking about the pain that accompanied it, which which brings to mind like a small, like I haven't, even, I haven't researched this. Perhaps there's a, there's a miracle blog post out there that explains it all. But we've all at some point in the other probably tried to bend a spoon with our mind or move it with our mind. Have you done this? Yes. Tried to do something psychic. Yeah, it was probably it was probably like when I was yesterday. Yeah, and, but but when you do it, do you you inevitably start to feel a strain. You feel something straining. You feel like a slight. Oh, I'm trying too hard. What what where is that taking place? What are we straining? I, I have a feeling maybe it's just something as simple as we're we're straining our vision because we're kind of thinking right, hard right. and we're kind of squinting. Right. But it, but I don't know. It, it got me thinking. It's like if because if I can't do something. I shouldn't feel the strain of trying to do it. I wonder if your pupils dilate and try to take in more light, Maybe so. more data. I have a feeling it's eye-related, but if anybody has any um, any feedback on that, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to hear. Like I said, I haven't looked into it, but just uh, thought about it the other day in the car. Car Thoughts with Robert Lamb. All right, this one comes to us from Tony. Tony says, hey, guys, love the podcast. Great topics to get me through my long walks on this very large campus of Michigan State. Michigan. Right? Go blue. <laughs> and my long meals in the cafeteria. Go meals. Fun fact, uh, Brody Hall, an area of dorms on the northwest side of campus, actually houses the largest non-military cafeteria in America and maybe the world. I'm not sure. But anyway, I was listening to your Leprechaun Hallucinations episode, and I actually uh, experienced very bizarre and usually, arguably, terrifying hallucinations when I slip into a lucid dream. I think lucid dreaming is an interesting category of hallucination because you are dreaming, but you are aware of it, and in many cases you're able to control what goes on. Usually when I dream lucidly, I like to take a back seat and let my mind unwind the story, but there are some times when things will pop up that are very jarring, and I typically undergo a fight-or-flight reaction in this dream, uh, dreamland, stay sl- asleep, or wake up. I don't dream uh, lucidly very often, maybe two to three times a month at most, but I've had some very bizarre encounters with interesting creatures popping up. For instance, about a week ago, I was dreaming that I was sitting in a room and there was a rainstorm. It wasn't actually raining at the time, and I was really just enjoying my night in content. Then a very large thunderclap echoes through my mind, most uh, likely a door slamming down the hall uh, in my dorm, and the lights uh, in my dream go out, but I can still see various shapes and shadows. I then turn and look to the left, physically and mentally, and see a large dark dark shadow standing in the doorway, which I am uh, concluding is the dresser that is in the exact spot I was looking. So I immediately think, wake up, but instead I slip into sleep paralysis, which if you have ever never experienced is extremely bizarre. When I experience sleep paralysis, I am still able to move, but only very slowly, or so it seems from my perspective in the dream. I wonder if brain activity is so high or low that I am actually moving normal, uh, but, uh, but the speed is uh, perceived as slow. Uh, I am also able to open my eyes, see the world, but not actually be awake. It's easily the weirdest visual experience. So this dark figure appears, uh, walks uh, toward me, and my body feels like uh, like it's under immense pressure. I try to raise my arms, but it takes uh, 10 minutes 
Uh, my eyes are open, but I still can't wake up. The figure is almost there, and then, out of nowhere, I'm awake uh, with the most intense body tingle and an elevated heart rate. Maybe it doesn't technically classify as hallucinating, but I think it does. Uh, again, thanks for the cool topics. Love you guys. Tony. Huh. Well, that is that is fascinating because, for the most part, uh, what, what we're talking about there in that example isn't a uh, hallucination, but it is it is sleep paralysis, which we have talked about before in its relation to paranormal experience, mm-hmm. which is also something that relates to hallucination experiences, where something unreal happens, uh, but but it feels real and it's observed as real. Yeah, when Tony first introduced the concept at the beginning of uh, of that email, I wasn't quite sure that that it could be hallucination. But in describing that, yeah, I mean, could you talk about sleep paralysis? And the problem with that is that your brain has not quite come back online yeah. with your body. Because the idea is, when you're dreaming, you may be throwing kung fu chops and kicks everywhere, but. It's kind of like a simulation. You, you don't need to actually throw kung fu chops around. So your body's under lockdown. And when sleep paralysis occurs, your mind wakes up, but your body is still locked down. Right. So if you're receiving data, again, from your eyes, visual cortex, that isn't jibing with the rest of your experience, then, you know, again, the brain uh, abhors a void and it will fill in for you. So exactly. I do kind of like I said, I wasn't quite sure at the beginning, but in the description of, of Tony's experience, I see how that is a possibility. Um, it would be very interesting to see some sort of MRI studies uh, that could correlate with that. Of course, then you'd have to induce someone into lucid right. dreaming and then sleep but uh, the paralysis. Great, the great thing here is Tony is applying critical thinking to uh, an experience that in other cases might be perceived as something supernatural or abnormal. I mean, it's still terrifying, uh, obviously. But right. he's able to afterwards realize, oh, well, what's going on? Is, uh, there's a scientific explanation for it. All right, here's one from McKella. McKella writes in uh, in uh, response to our PICA episode, and she says, Love the podcast. I had my own experience with PICA during my second pregnancy. I craved ice so strongly, I started bringing cups of it to work with me from home to keep up with the demand. The weirder craving uh, was uh, was of a smell, the A.C. in my car. I would sit in my driveway for 15 minutes with my nose as close to the vent as possible, breathing in the beautiful fragrance. Uh, this became increasingly, increasingly hard as my belly grew. Almost immediately after having my son, the smell all but disappeared from my radar. My doctor, although pretty surprised at this odd habit, attributed both of these to my anemic status during my pregnancy. All right, that is unusual because, again, when we talk about uh, pika which I think we were saying pick up, by the way, so we have to apologize for that, or I was. You think about it more as, as eating dirt for the you know nutrients that mm-hmm. are inherent there, but not necessarily the, the AC coming out of the car. I mean, I, I love the smell of air conditioning. I can remember as a, as, as a child, like, loving it. Maybe because I liked, you know, the, I liked the cool and, and all, and I didn't like being out in the sweating heat. But there's something, even today, like, when you when you reach that point where you're suddenly turning the air conditioning back on, mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, ah, oh, the smell it smells good. I, I, did, I did not even realize that air conditioning had a smell. It, it does. It has it has a smell, and... Uh, and a quite lovely one if you're in, if you're in the mood for it. Okay, so now that makes me wonder: Is there a large part of the population that likes to smell air conditioning and can detect the smell of it? Because I, mean, I, I believe that I cannot. Well, we talked before. I mean, smell is a powerful thing, and and yeah. we attach memories to smell that that we almost really can't completely fathom. We've all had that experience where we're walking down the street and we smell something, and we're like, and it just takes us back to like a childhood memory, and then we don't even know where the smell came from or even necessarily what it was. The Prostian, uh, Prostian, uh, Madeleine's right. The yeah. Story, the story that he talks about his memory and food. Yeah, I was at a, a friend's house and they opened up a new board game, mm-hmm. and I, I ended up having to like just basically huff the board game box for a little bit because mm-hmm. the the smell was taking me back to something. 
that I had some positive feelings about and some nostalgia for. And I think maybe it ended up having the same smell as like Dungeons and Dragons manuals from the the mid '90s or something. I don't know. It was, I think that's what it was. I couldn't quite put a pin on it. And it's so you know, it's probably like a weird chemical smell, you mm-hmm. know. But it pulled something out of me. Crazy game board sniffer. Yeah. All right, this one comes to us from Antonio. Antonio writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. My name is Tony, and I just wanted to comment on a podcast you did a couple of months ago about bad neighborhoods and how people generally don't help. To start, I live in a city of about 30,000 people, so pretty small and not really any bad neighborhoods to speak of, but I recently went to Las Vegas, and it was almost a sickness to me to give money to every homeless person I saw. I believe it is because I live in a place where we don't have a homeless population there, for I'm not blind to it. Also, I just watched a a show on the Science Channel called Alien Encounters, and it was mentioned that we just might be developing a hive brain mentality with the help of the Internet um, in our smartphones, iPods, etc., and how that could greatly help us against not only an alien invasion, but just about any problem humankind could face. I'm curious as to what you think about the hive uh, brain versus the plain old single brain. I love your podcast. I listen to it while I work uh, my factory job, and it keeps me sane and my brain working. Keep it up, Tony. So two interesting things he's, he's responding to there. Uh, one, talking about, you know, what happens when we encounter, you know, say a homeless individual or somebody in need and how group dynamics mm-hmm. affect that, you know, where if, if, if you're seeing other people pass them by, then it kind of becomes the norm and you want to, and a lot of times you feel like you need to keep with the norm or if there's kind of a culture of not helping, you know, versus, uh, versus um, other environments where you're going to be more in close proximity and they seem more human to you, strangers in general. Yeah, we've seen this in countless experiments, whether conducted on the street or, you know, in an instance where someone is placed at a in a situation where they could give money to another person. Mm-hmm. But if the other person knew they were giving them money, then they would give them it. But if they, you know, like there's all sorts of, there are all sorts of experiments that involve altruism. And it does seem that whoever uh, sort of does the, the first thing it dictates what the protocol will be. So yeah. if you help that stranger in the street, other people will follow suit. Yeah, we've talked about this too in terms of uh, corporations and industries, large, you know, any kind of large social structure, it, where if you have, if there's like a caring um, culture mm-hmm. in, at the beginning of it and the roots of it, mm-hmm. then that tends to carry on out through the company as it grows. But to whatever degree it's not there, then it's not there in the larger social organism as well. So uh, anyway, it was an interesting email because he really drives home like two aspects of the group think and uh, and this hive mind, the idea that it can it can lead to some great things, some some the bringing together of ideas, our potential to better the world and potentially protect it against an alien invasion, uh, but also in our ability to all decide not to do anything for someone that needs help. Well, and also I think points toward the self-organizing nature. Yeah. And I always think about this whenever I get in the elevator now, since we did the podcast on elevators, and you watch people come in and see how they organize themselves. Yeah. And over and over again, people will self-organize into these certain configurations. So um, sort of these invisible forces always at play, and we just don't always realize it. All right, and here's uh, one from listener Eric. Eric writes in and says, On the subject of labeling labeling food with gross names, like writing cloaca cake on a cake, my mother came up with a recipe she calls garbage can casserole. She invented it shortly after getting married. She had a can of soup, some chicken, and a little bit of other food, but not really enough of one thing to make a meal for two people. It's basically a chicken casserole with cream of chicken and cream of mushroom soup right from the can without diluting it so it stays thick. 
chow mein noodles, water chestnuts, and quote unquote other stuff topped with cornflakes and baked. She says it makes it uh, it makes you clean out your refrigerator, and anything that's not green and fuzzy goes into the dish. It's not quite that easy, but the the other stuff usually consists of different vegetables like peas, green beans, and or corn. Uh, I ate it a lot growing up, and despite its name, it's one of my favorites. I usually make it for potluck parties, and it's almost always gone by the end, so long as I don't display it with the name garbage can casserole. I've tried <laughs> displaying it with that name in the past as an experiment, and if I do, it's almost always untouched except for the helping I took for myself uh, to show it was tried. So there you go. Eric has already done this experiment that we were talking about uh, to, to a certain extent. Call it garbage casserole. Who's going to eat it? Call it, you know, beautiful casserole or just casserole. And then people, crunchy casserole. Crunchy casserole, people will go for it. You see the same thing with, uh, with some fish feces, right? Yeah. You have fish where it's like if it's called a slime head or if it's called a dolphin, because we have the fish that is the dolphin as well as the, mm-hmm. mam- the mammalian dolphin. People are going to be hesitant to eat it, but you rebrand it as something. Uh, I forget what the slime head was rebranded as, but uh, what the, the dolphin became, uh, Mai Mai, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's true. Yeah. So I still want to do the cloaca cake. I, th- I think though. we should. I think we should do it. We should film it, and uh, and see see how it pans out here in the office. Mm-hmm. All right. So there you go, um, Robert. Do you uh, do you feel better about things now? Well, good. Good. Yes. Well, I love you, too. All right. And we love you guys. We um, love you guys. This is a lot about just sharing um, some of your feedback with everybody else. And we love to get this email. And uh, it makes us, it reminds us of why we love this job so much. And it's very nice. So thanks, yeah. guys. Yeah. And if uh, feedback's good on this, if you guys like this and it wasn't a, an annoyance, then, uh, you know, maybe we'll do some more bonus episodes like this. So, uh, hey, in the meantime, if you want to send us more listener mail and reach out to us uh, with your various comments and shares and whatnot, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those. And on Twitter, we go by the handle Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.